one of the things that uh, I have regretted for a long time and may change one of these days is in this part two of lesson seven, the, the G Jesus as a teacher, what I've done in this lesson is I've written down several of the things that Jesus taught, the things that I thought were uh, most necessary for us to know. But the one thing that they didn't get written down there was Jesus' style, if you will, as a teacher. Jesus gives us one of the greatest examples of a good teacher, I think, that the world's ever known. And the person was going to do a good job of teaching a teaching class. I think you'd want to use Jesus as an example. I have some things written down. I'll just go ahead. I hope you won't mind. I'll do some reading with the stuff that you don't have. Jesus was often a healer, sometimes a worker of miracles, frequently a preacher, but always a teacher. He was told, his teaching was told about several places in the Bible. I'm not going to turn there. But uh, one of the good things is Nicodemus, everybody's pretty well familiar with John chapter 3 and John, uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And when Nicodemus first approached Jesus for that conversation, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Amen. So one of the important aspects about that is we get into Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes and we look at... Um, at wisdom, we find out that all wisdom comes from the Lord. Real knowledge comes from the Lord. Here comes Jesus, a man from God. Jesus is God. So everything that Jesus said is wisdom. And everything that he said is things that we can latch on to. Uh, Jesus was the master teacher. Thousands would gather and hang on his every word. People traveled far and wide just to hear him. And the lessons he taught spread like fire and literally changed not only the world that he was in, but the world that we live in today. Get this in here. <clears throat> There's a few things I want us to take a look at. <clears throat> There, I have six things written down as the methods that Jesus used to teach. Number one, Jesus told stories. Number two, Jesus shocked people. We'll get into that. Jesus crafted memorable sayings. That's one of the things that I really like. I mean, you've probably got a sheet that I have on wise sayings that I passed out when we started, first started this class. Uh, Jesus does that too. Jesus asked questions and he used object lessons and he used repetition. I want to start with talking a little bit about the parables. Uh, and because of time, I'm not going to go as far into this as that I could. But there's a, there's a real important thing for us to be able to grab out of the parables. There's two different types of parables. Most of the parables that Jesus taught had a, within them a twofold thing, and that is that he would often tell things whereby we could use that parable as a mirror and see ourselves. And the other part of those same parables, 
was that they would be like an open window to look at the heart of God. You could see the heart of God in some of these. The other type of parables <clears throat> was where he, he purposefully said parables that went over the head of most of his audience, and he did that on purpose. He did that because he was speaking to his disciples and he was speaking to his followers knowing that they could catch on or he could explain it to them. But the Pharisees and Sadducees and so forth that were following him around, these parables would go right over their head. And so he hid things from the people. He, he just didn't, I think he just didn't feel like taking the time to sit down and try to explain everything to them that they weren't going to believe anyway. So some of his parables were along that nature. He just said things that went over some of the people's heads. Good morning, Cindy. I want to uh, I want to talk a little bit and Snoop's turning there and read it all of it. Is, is there anyone that isn't familiar with the parable of, of what we call the prodigal son? Everybody familiar with that? Okay, good, because I'm going to assume you are. I don't want to have to go there and read it. But Jesus could have just said, you know, God the Father will forgive you and welcome you back into his arms no matter how far you stray. And that would have been a truthful statement and would have been done with it. But he didn't do that. Instead, he told a story that reveals things. And so we want to take a look at this. Remember, I said that a lot of the parables will have a mirror effect. We'll see ourselves in it. Some movie producer once said something to the effect that a good movie or a good story will always have in it the potential for, we're in uh, Lesson 7, Part 2, will always have the potential in it for someone to be able to say, oh, there I go, that's me. They were able to recognize themselves in the characters here. Well, the first thing we want to take a look at is this son who wanted his inheritance now. I'd like for you to take a look at the audacity of this thing. People look at it and think, oh, well, I guess that's the way things were then and not now, but no, that isn't true. The truth of the matter is, is that an inheritance from time eternal has always been that the person receiving that inheritance would receive it after the person doing the inheritance, which would most of the time be the, be the uh, adult and the parent, and in most of the Middle East, the father. Uh, so by this kid going to his father and saying, I want my inheritance now, in essence, he was saying, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance and go my own way and do my own thing. I want to take a look at how the father might have felt there. And I also want us to hold up a mirror and say, well, not us, of course, but anybody, you think anybody could ever say to God, I want all your blessings, and I want them now, but I don't want to have to wait. <clears throat> and that's where this young fellow was. So he, the father, loved the kid enough that he did it. Sold out who knows how much of what he had, and he, and he paid off the kid. And we all know about the kid. Went off and squandered everything that he had. Went into a really bad place where 
evil abounded. One of the things that's well known about the area that he went into and the people that he went into is that uh, because of their um, idols being <clears throat> sexual, that, um, that he was off spending his money basically on prostitutes. <coughs> and so he squandered it with not good living. But finally, when he's down to nothing, and it's ironic how many people come down to nothing and finally are able to see themselves, he came down to nothing, and he was able to see himself, took a good look at himself, and decided, I'd be better off back with Dad even if I just worked for him. So he goes home. Remember that we talk about these parables, are not, and by the way, I hope that we all can see ourselves or people in general in that guy. I don't think he's so much different than a whole lot of humanity. But let's take a look at the father. The father whose son had basically said to him, I wish you were dead so I could have your money is waiting for the son to come home every day. What does it say? When the son comes home and he gets close enough to the house to be seen, what does the father do? Somebody tell me. He runs. He runs. It's the only place in the Bible where God is pictured as running. I want you to know something about the culture. It was never considered proper for an older man to run. They had to be stately human beings. They carried themselves well. It was beneath their dignity to pull up their skirt and run. Also, he wasn't a young man. He was an older man. So he runs to meet this boy. And the whole thing here in Jesus in this parable is giving us a picture of humanity and he's giving us a picture of Almighty God. That God loves us so much that when we're way out there somewhere, he's waiting. And you know, right there is where at least my heart goes to the ambassador. What does he say when he's talking about us being reconciled to God, that we become ambassadors for Christ as though God were in us pleading with these wandering souls, pleading with them to come home? Well, that's enough about the parable, but what I wanted to show you about this particular parable, and it's true of almost all of the parables in which Jesus is really telling a story. If you'll look at those parables closely, you will find those two things. Each one of them will give us the opportunity to, as it were, look in a mirror and see ourselves. And the other part of the parable will always point out something of God, that we can see God as though looking through a window, exposed to us. That's one of the reasons why Jesus told what we call the parables. But he, he taught by telling stories. 
Let me ask you a question. From what's just been said, I've been telling you a story. I've noticed that every one of you were glued on what I was saying. Do you see how stories attract people's attention? And they pay attention and they learn. So the master teacher knew that. He taught by telling stories. He taught also by shocking people. And what I mean here is that uh, he talked about uh, ripping our eyes out and, and cutting off our feet. And do you think that he really meant that people literally had a log in their eye? See, he said things along this nature to shock them, to get their attention. That's also another mark of a good teacher. I've been taking for quite a while now, I've been taking courses from Dallas Theological Seminary. All of you can, they're free. Uh, you, you take them, actually what you're doing is you're monitoring a class. Um, they've got a camera and microphone set up in these classes where these college professors are teaching seminary and you're allowed to sit in on those classes. Uh, there's one particular um, professor there that I've noticed three or four times when he comes in and he sets all of his stuff down, kind of like I do up here, and he gets ready to start the class. Everybody's sitting there waiting for him. He'll make a statement that was like, what? So he shocks them. He gets their attention. Jesus did that. He crafted memorial sayings. Uh, one real prime example is um, uh, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in several places, Jesus has um, put out, and let me judge not, and you will not be judged. <coughs> Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven, etc. So he, he crafted memorable sayings. Some of the things that I have, and I think that they're important, and, I, and, and it also will illustrate how these sayings can give something to someone to grab hold of and learn from. Uh, one of my sayings is, is if God has placed a Goliath in front of you, he must believe there's a David in there somewhere. You understand that? Uh, another one is, if I think that God exists to make me happy, then I'm going to miss the point of him existing to make me holy. Another one I read just recently, and I wrote it down because I really like it. <coughs> says, don't live like you're dying because you're not. Talking to Christians. Don't live like you're dying because you're not. But live like Jesus is coming because he is. Yeah. Sayings. And Jesus used these methods to teach, and he was a great teacher. He asked questions. Ha, <laughs> ha. One of, the, one of the ones that I like most is where they talking to him about uh, should they pay taxes to Rome? And he's going, whose picture's on the coin? Yeah. And give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is his. Uh, he used object lessons. He called a little child to him to discuss having like childlike faith. Um, he... He talked about unselfish giving after watching a widow drop two small coins in the corn box. Um, and he used repetition. How many times 
did Jesus tell his disciples that he was going to be killed and on the third day resurrected and so forth? He told them over and over again. And the point is, guys, that sometimes we need that. Sometimes we just don't grasp the real meaning or truth of something and it needs to be repeated to us again and again and again. And those are just six of the methods that Jesus used to teach. One other thing that I want to point out here is that what Jesus did with his disciples. Twelve men. With the exception of Judas, all 11 of those remaining men turned out to be teachers that turned the world upside down. I think of Peter so often, he thrills my soul because I, the Gospels let us get well acquainted with Peter. He's a burly, tough guy doing his own thing. He's kind of just like a hundred other people that I know. Just a man, good man, good-sized man, just a man. And then you get into the book of Acts and you see Peter open up his mouth and 3,000 people came to the Lord in one sermon. Another good example, although he wasn't one of the 12. But evidently he had, he must have been, and, and the theory is, is that Stephen must have been with around Jesus as one of his followers for a long time, even though he wasn't one of the 12. Turn to Acts sometime, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, along in there is when you're going to get introduced to Stephen. And the sermon that Stephen preached, after they had taken him out, <laughs> he was teaching in the synagogue, and they pulled him out, and they took him out where they're going to stone him to death. And right there facing that, he told them everything they'd ever done. He went through the history of Israel and brought them right up to the present time and, and showed them where they were wrong. Showed them that they were the ones that had crucified the Christ, the Messiah. Stephen's, Stephen's dissertation there is something to grab hold of. There, and they told him, and there's where he died. And there's where we're introduced to Saul and so forth. I can leave all that. Let's kind of get back to the lesson. I wanted to do that. But I also just wanted to be able to point out that Jesus not only taught things we need to know. We need to know that Jesus was a master teacher. A master teacher. All right. Let's get to the lesson. <laughs> well, we've got a half an hour. We'll see how much. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have read this lesson? That's every hand in it. Praise God. Praise God. Because the reason that I consider that so important is that I don't have to worry about trying to get through every detail in this lesson. If you've read it, you've got it. All right? But we can highlight some things. Um, Jesus taught the two ways. And he chose to talk to people about enter at the straight gate and choose the narrow way. And that broad is the way that leads to destruction. Um, let me turn to something here. Luke, uh, 
Luke 13, 24 to 30. I want to point out something here. Okay. Here Jesus speaking. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer to say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And, and there's more there. I can read. The point is, there's two things here that's really important for us to understand from that particular uh, range of scripture, and that is who's Jesus talking to? Jesus talking to the Jews who thought that they were first. They were God's chosen people, but they had taken these facts and, and gotten them into their heart to the point of arrogance. They thought that they were above everyone else, that, that anyone that wasn't a Jew was beneath their dignity. They thought that they would be first. And the illustration here of knocking on the door is trying to say to the Jews, you know, you hold out here depending on your arrogance and you think that because you've been God's chosen people all this time that you can just come up there and knock on the door and he's going to let you in and that's not the way it works. And so that's the, the crux of the matter there. That there are two ways and Jesus, of course, taught about heaven and hell. And I want to get into something about what Jesus taught about the law. Um, let me turn back just a minute to where I were. There's another thing that comes up out of that little piece of scripture that's important for us to look at. Um, reading down to Luke 13, chapter, uh, verse 23, and that's, that's a, back, a verse from where I started. One of these Jews says to him, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And then Jesus goes into this dissertation. Uh, the Living Bible, although paraphrased, puts it in a way I think we can better understand. While this is a closer interpretation of the actual words, uh, the, the real question is, are there only a few that's going to be saved? And Jesus, by going through what he did in a way, and you have to get in there and really look at it, but you'll see it, uh, Jesus is answering basically saying the question is not how many will be saved but whether or not you will be saved get that settled first and then we can discuss what you can do to save others so that's one of the things that we really 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 need to get down in our heart <laughs> um, I think that there's a lot I've worked for some. Uh, one of the things that I'm hoping to maybe institute here in this church one of these days is discipleship, uh, not discipleship training, but evangelism class. I'd like to get more 
discipleship training going too. That's what this is. But, um, but evangelism training. I was involved in some evangelism training in Fort Lauderdale. And I can tell you that there were people, and I want to be careful, and I want to be careful about saying this, because in one way, you there's things that you're never ever going to know about another person. On the other hand, God does give us discernment. And you can tell some things about people by the way they act, by the way they speak, and what they do. And we had people going out evangelizing, going out talking to people on the street, that truthfully folks really needed to get their own life straight. <clears throat> they were out there prematurely. And it's one of the things that cautioned me and one of the things that I began to do there at that time was we were, we were being taught uh, under Evangelism Explosion. It's quite a wonderful program. But it didn't cover that one particular subject to let's make sure you're saved before we go out here and start trying to preach to everybody else. Jesus taught about God's law. Uh, Jesus taught us that God's law was good and holy. He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. He taught us that keeping God's laws is not simply a matter of obeying them outwardly, but that we must keep them in our hearts. For example, the Bible says that if you hate somebody in your heart, you are a murderer in God's sight. Now, <laughs> we've already gone through some important lessons. We're going to be coming into more, especially after we finish all the parts of Lesson 7. We're going to be getting into Lesson 8, which is assurance of salvation. Um, we want to be sure that we understand a major difference here. And that is that salvation is a free gift of God based on faith in what Jesus has done. And even the faith is not something we conjure up by ourselves. It's a gift. Okay. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 it's a, that faith is the gift. So salvation comes by the grace of God, not by anything that we have done. No human being can or ever has or ever will earn salvation. None righteous, no, not one, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, no matter how great they think they are. Yet the reverse side of that coin comes into being, and that is that that we must recognize the fact that Jesus, that God Almighty from the moment of our creation wants us to obey him. Why? For our own good. For our own good, he wants us to live a life of obedience, not a life of rebellion, not a life of don't tell me what to do, but a life of lead me, God, and be God in my heart. You be the Lord on the throne. So we have to come to this, but we have to come to it with a clear understanding of the separation there. Because if we don't, then we come to a place where we think that salvation comes to us only after we've made Jesus Lord of our life. 
that can be very misleading to the world because if they think they're keeping all the rules, then they're accepted by God and saved. And we mustn't ever give anyone that impression. We must always teach that salvation, <coughs> your right standing with God, the being reconciled to God, is not something that we do. Nevertheless, once we become a child of God, I like putting it this way, once you become a child of the king, you have an obligation to act like it. See? So keeping the law then becomes very important to us. That's when we make Jesus the Lord of our life. But that's a voluntary thing. Romans 12, when it says that, basically says that making Jesus the Lord of your life is something that's just a reasonable requirement. It's a reasonable thing that we ought to do to keep, to let Jesus be the Lord of our life and so that we're become obedient. So the, and what I'm saying then in a, whole, in a nutshell is that the law is not done away with. We're still supposed to be keepers of the law. We're just supposed to know that God loved us enough to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can become a child of God. And then, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of what we know through God Almighty, once we see him as the father that runs out to put his arms around us, that once we know these things, then we can keep the law out of what? A heart. Out of a heart that wants to keep the law. Out of a heart that's not doing it to earn anything, but doing it out of a heart that loves God in return. That's real obedience, yes, isn't it? Speaking of stories, can I tell a, a short story? You sure can. Help me get this, what you're saying. Um, hopefully I tell it right. So there were, there were two prisoners. This is just a, a parable. Okay. Someone told this to me. Um, two different prisoners. Um, the, they had each murdered someone. So the, the first one spent uh, his whole time in his prison cell sweeping the floor, making the bed, washing the walls, making everything look good. And when um, the guard came to take him to death row, he said, look, but look at my room, look what I've done. Doesn't this pay back what I have done? I've cleaned, I've done all these things in here. And the guard's like, no, you deserve death, come on, and, and took him. So that's the one, but that would be like us trying to earn our salvation. Amen. Right? And then this is the other, this is the heart that we should have, which is the prisoner, the guard comes to get the prisoner and he falls on his knees and, and begs for forgiveness and begs for his life and says, I deserve death. And the guard says, you are pardoned. And so from that day forth, he comes back to the prison and he sweeps the floors and he cleans the walls out of a heart of gratitude. Amen. So that man, that helped me. That, that. Like, that's oh, okay. excellent. Yeah, and that's really the point. That's really the whole point here, and, and that's the, really the point behind, behind where Jesus <coughs> makes it very, very clear that he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. The law is still there. Even if I don't get to the next page, I've got something I, I want to share with you. <coughs> And that's about repentance. Let's talk a little bit about what's here. Jesus made it clear that no one can be saved unless he repents. Except you repent, you shall likewise perish, Luke 13, 5. 
What is repentance? Repentance is a turnaround, a change of mind that leads to a change in conduct. It is turning to Christ and from sin. Luke 15, Jesus taught about the prodigal son. We've already said that. And the story illustrates what it means to be repentant. And, and that's the one thing I didn't talk about, but that's the one thing that the son shows us when he gets to the place where he's sorry enough for what he's done that he's willing to change his life and go back and be a servant. Um, I want to, uh, Chris, will you help me? Pete? Yeah. Guys, just pass those up. There's way more than what everybody needs. Uh, but, but I want to share this with you. And this is one of the things that we share in jail a lot. <clears throat> because we want to be able to be sure that people understand what real repentance is. Now, wait till everybody's got that. Y'all don't have them yet, baby. They're coming. I need a couple over here, brother. Thank you. Yes, sir. <clears throat> All right. Thank you, Peter. Repentance consists of a clear and humble admission without excuse of our guilt. One of the things that we want to be really careful of with this thing of repentance is someone who still has it in their heart. Well, yeah, but I wouldn't have done it if she hadn't have done whatever. Or the circumstances of my job or our financial condition. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many men that, that we're dealing with, John and I are dealing with, that are in jail and because of strict laws facing long sentences, because they were in bad financial condition, and even though they weren't drug addicts, started selling drugs. Yeah, didn't get out there and start selling drugs because they were addicts, which most do, but for income. And so they're saying, well, you know, if the economy was better, if I could have had a better job, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if we're going to come to God and I'm saying this to you not because I don't think that every one of you are already here, but we're ambassadors for Christ, right? We want to be sure that, that when, when we're dealing with someone trying to lead them to repentance, that they've come to the place where they're able to admit their guilt without any excuse, not, not blaming anyone else, not making any excuses, but being able to stand before God and say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty like the man that said, I'm guilty. The truly repentant are not victims. In our society, we're training people to be victims. You realize that? Oh, well, man, I, <laughs> I just won't get into it. But we <laughs> see it's on the news every day that all, we've got a victimized society. Uh, listen, the truly repentant are not victims. They're not just mistaken. They're admitted sinners who accept responsibility for what they chose to do, period, and seek to be forgiven and demonstrate their repentance through a servant's spirit of submission. With no demands, they accept the consequences of their sin with grace. Guys, when, 
what, it, when a person comes to the place where they want to be able to, they're ready to be saved. They want to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Here's where they need to be. They don't to be like the guy that you just talked about that says, well, look at all that I'm doing. I mean, and I've been doing good things. Uh, accept the consequences. Willing to, and, and we teach this at jail. We go over this with the guys in jail quite often. And I'll tell you why. We get prayer requests at jail. And every once in a while, maybe more than that, we get somebody saying, please pray that I won't get all that the law says I got coming in. And you know, sometimes the law is lenient, and sometimes they do get off with a little less sentence than what the law had prescribed. I'll tell you how tough I am. I'll tell them, no, no, I'm not praying for them. I'm praying for you to be guilty before Almighty God and that you'll tell God that you know that you're guilty and you'll accept the consequences of your sin knowing that he'll walk with you through it. We point out uh, Joshua 1.9 and Jeremiah 29.7 uh, and talk, that God has promised he'll be with you. He'll walk with you. You can serve God in prison as well as you can out here. Maybe even better. And we'll pray for you to walk with God and we'll pray for you to let God be the Lord of your life and whatever God says for you is what's going to happen. And if you put it in God's hands, it's very likely that he may not give you a long sentence. But I won't pray for it. I won't pray for it. The law has to take its course and you're going to have to suffer the natural consequences of your sin. God forgives us. But listen. The natural consequences of our sin will <coughs> be there. If you're running 100 miles an hour down the road and you hit somebody head on, most likely you're going to die. All right? If you choose, you can choose what you do. You can choose to jump off of a tall building. But the consequences of that choice are not up to you. Right? God's not all of a sudden going to reach out his hand and catch you. If you were dumb enough to jump off, you're going to, come, you're going to suffer the consequences. Somebody has said you do not need a parachute to jump out of a plane. You need a parachute if you think you're going to jump out of it the second time. <laughs> so the cons sins have consequences. I'll pray for men to turn their hearts over to God and want to be uh, led by God, want to live in that, that relationship that, that comes from reconciliation, being put back together with God, by all means, that's what we're after and that's what we want. But the consequences of your sin will work themselves out and God may intervene. But I, I just tell them, I, everybody in our class knows I won't pray for that. I won't pray for you to get an easy sentence. I'll pray for you to get justice. All right, enough of that. I wanted to be able to go over that. Uh, <clears throat> here, we've got a little time, so we'll turn the page and get into this. Um, 
you'll remember when we, when we started this class, the first lesson was on the Trinity. We talked about the fact that it's a difficult subject, really difficult subject. And a lot of people really struggle with how to put the pieces of the Trinity in place. Not realizing that it's a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual thing. You sooner or later come to the place where you realize that you may not have all the answers, but the Spirit of God's telling you that this is the way it is. Go back to Nicodemus. It's John chapter 3. I assume everybody knows it, but but Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus and he asks. He says, "I like the illustrations the Bible is so honest. It does the same thing we do. He he comes in. He's buttering Jesus up a little bit. He he's uh, he's got a real serious question he wants to ask Jesus. But he first of all comes in and says, "We know that you're a teacher come from God." See, so. It's like going to a man and saying, hey, man, I know that you're, you're, you're the top-notch dog around here, and you're the one, and I, I, I admire you, and, uh, and I want to be on your team, and so forth. But by the way, <laughs> see, so that's kind of what Nicodemus is doing here. So Nicodemus comes, and Jesus just answers him point blank and said, you need to be born again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Obviously, Nicodemus was shocked by the statement. And as the conversation re reveals, he, uh, he, he just couldn't understand it, couldn't grasp it. Number one, and it points out here in the lesson that obviously he was a good man. He was one of the hierarchy of the, of the uh, Pharisees. He was a man of good standing. He was considered to be a good man. And if you read then the rest of the Gospels, you'll see Nicodemus mentioned here and there he was a good man. He's one of the men that went to capture to get Jesus' body. Uh, Nicodemus is a good man. Now, he didn't understand this. What's this mean about being born again? Uh, let me, let me read, let me turn there. I'm going to go to 1 John. <clears throat> Glad we've got a couple of minutes here. 1 John. I'm going to start in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. What's this mean about being born again? Going back to the same thing that we had when we were talking about the Trinity, it's a spiritual thing. It, it's simply, and Jesus, I'm sure he must have chuckled when Nicodemus says, can a person enter again the second time into the mother's womb? No. We're not talking about a physical rebirth here. 
Or actually, we're talking about your spirit being born. What happens to a person when they come to the place where we're talking about in repentance, where they realize that, that they're guilty and that they don't deserve anything? Not deserving of anything. But the penalty is death. And they come and they're willing to be able to say, did Jesus really pay for my sin? Are you serious? Yes. <clears throat> yeah. What happens when that fact becomes a known fact in a person's mind and it moves down to their heart and it begin to break down and you're going, really? Really? Something in there when you say, yes, really, comes alive. All of a sudden it's like, oh, God, thank you. Do you see it? The spirit, the spirit of the man deep in his soul comes alive. And he's been born a second time. His spirit just got born. The, the Bible says, in talking about the spirit, uh, Jesus says, the spirit is with you now. And this was before his crucifixion. And Jesus said, the spirit is with you, but he will be what? In you. He comes alive. That's the new birth. That's no, no, Nicodemus. We don't go again into our mother's womb. We're not talking about a physical birth, but unless the Spirit of God lives in, and what's John saying here? Uh, you know, we've talked about this, and we'll be talking about it more. Uh, uh, the double imputation thing, where where uh, we have Jesus in us, the hope of glory, and us and Jesus are standing before God, so that. We have the Son. He's in us and we're in Him. And Paul, or John, I'm sorry here, says, He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who have worked to earn your way to heaven. Is that what it says? No. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's your assurance. <laughs> assurance is how you may know. If you've got the Son of God, you have eternal life because He is eternal life. Okay? Don't live like you're dying because you're not. Live like the Son of God's coming again because He is.